And once again, another episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892, bringing to you a mountain of misfortune, culled from various period newspapers from the week of Sunday, May 13th. First up, a weird little story out of Akron, Ohio, reported on by the Hamilton Daily Democrat of the same state. March 18th, page one. The headline, took his last drink. At a late hour, Wednesday night, Clifton Wright, a well-known and popular traveling salesman of this city, walked into a saloon, asked for a glass of seltzer with a spoon, and while stirring into the water a quantity of some crystalline substance he had in a paper, calmly said, Goodbye, boys. I'm going to die. He drank the contents of the glass and then remarked that it was chloral hydrate. I've taken enough to kill four men. I'll be dead in five minutes. He then coolly proposed to shake dice with the proprietor for his last drink. Two or three minutes later, he reeled and plunged headlong to the floor. An ambulance conveyed him to his home where he died in two hours. His wife, who was a Miss Birth, lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky, left him suddenly a week ago and returned home. Their married life was not happy and Wright, on Wednesday, was informed by his wife's lawyer that he would have to defend a divorce suit. For this next story, we travel to the sparsely populated state of Iowa, home to corn, cream, and sometimes creamed corn, and yes, the occasional crime. Before we get to it, however, a brief explanation of the term whitecaps or white capping might be helpful. White caps were members of vigilante groups originally formed in Indiana and created to enforce morality, provide punishment for men who abused or neglected their families, husbands and wives who cheated on their spouses, and men who refused to work. Over time, these groups, this movement, would spread south and become associated with the bald knobbers and the Ku Klux Klan, and their vigilantism would expand to terrorize black people who they believed were reaching beyond their social status. So let's go to page two of the Cedar Rapids Evening Gazette. March 18th, the headline screams, Who Murdered Him? The murder of William Mills at the home of Mrs. Palmer continues to be the sole topic of conversation. The coroner's jury, after making a thorough examination, returned a verdict that the deceased came to his death from some harsh instrument in the hands of a person unknown to the jury. However, Palmer is under arrest, and many believe him to be the murderer. Some time ago, he and his wife separated. 
and the wife has a suit pending for divorce. Palmer lived in a hotel, and his wife occupied the homestead. On the night of the tragedy, William Mills, a personal friend of Mrs. Palmer, called upon her. While she and Mills were talking, the murderer rushed in upon them and felled Mills to the floor with a club, killing him. Mrs. Palmer screamed murder and ran to the neighbor. Ashpole, a stranger in the place, and Mrs. Palmer charge Palmer with the murder. Palmer was at the hotel all the evening, except for about 10 minutes at the hour of the murder. In February, Mills received a warning from Whitecaps because of his intimacy with Mrs. Palmer, which he did not heed. This has led many to believe the murder is the work of Whitecaps. Others think Mrs. Palmer murdered Mills. Next, we are going to the Buffalo Courier for a sensational story delivered straight from Liverpool, England. On the front page of the March 17th edition, it is an article from a wire service, and I'm not sure if it's written by an American or a British reporter. So the name in the article, Arthur Williams, or Arthur Wilson, was an alias for a man named Frederick Bailey Deeming. This guy is worthy of an entire episode of Most Notorious. He was that despicable. He was one of the many Jack the Ripper suspects investigated by Scotland Yard during the years after the murders of the Canonical Five. In fact, it was claimed that he had been a pen pal of Catherine Eddowes, and a witness had claimed that Deeming had been in the East End of London the night Eddowes was murdered. Here is the sensational story again out of the Buffalo Courier, that helped expose Deeming to the world. The headline, Horror in a House. Keep in mind while listening, Deeming left a trail of wives in his wake. He was a bigamist. Marie, his first wife, and his four children with her are the victims in this story. Murdered by Deeming that prior July. After he had murdered his family, he had met a young woman named Emily Mather, daughter of a local shopkeeper, and had taken her to Melbourne, Australia, where he had rented a house, slit her throat, caved in her head, and buried her under a bedroom hearthstone. All right, so let's hear the period account of the horror in a house now. Liverpool, March 16th. A great sensation has been caused by the arrest of Arthur Williams of Dinham Villa, Rainhill, Liverpool, on the charge of murdering his wife and two children. The bodies of the victims have been found cemented beneath the fireplace at the villa. Two more bodies have been found, those of a girl of 12 who had been strangled and a year-old child with the throat cut. The bodies of the woman and child 
previously unearthed also had their throats cut. From various indications, the suggestion has been made that Williams was the original Jack the Ripper. It is now stated that Williams murdered his wife in Australia and buried the body under a fireplace. Upon this news reaching Liverpool, Williams's neighbors at Rainhill recalled the fact that a woman and two children had been seen to visit the villa and had not been seen afterward. This led to a search of the premises and the five bodies were found cemented under the fireplace in the same manner that the body of Mrs. Williams had been reported to have been found in Australia. The question who Williams really is and how he lived remains a mystery. On his first appearance at Rainhill, he stayed at a hotel where he led a rollicking life, being a man of free manners with a general style of wealth. He drank plentifully, but not excessively, and was always ready for champagne treats. He was fond of society, was a good storyteller, having traveled much, and was always willing to spin a yarn. But when asked about himself, he immediately became taciturn. He never gave an inkling of his personal history. He took photographs from acquaintances, but never had himself photographed. A local newspaper on the occasion of his marriage to Miss Mather, whom he murdered in Melbourne, tried to get a sketch of his career, but Williams refused to give any information regarding himself. He first met Miss Mather at her mother's while making inquiries as to the renting of a villa. Williams pretended to act for a mythical Colonel Brooks and obtained the tenancy of the villa, paying six months' rent in advance. He furnished only a single room in the house. Immediately after he had taken possession of the villa, an unknown woman with two children was seen about the house. Nobody saw them arrive or depart. At about the same time, another woman visited him at a hotel when the two partook of a champagne luncheon. Williams told the landlord that his companion was his sister. This woman was seen twice when she also vanished. After taking the villa, Williams often left the hotel in the morning and would not return until the evening. His clothing and person used to be covered with dirt, and his hands were much blistered. He explained his untidy appearance by saying that he had been engaged in putting down new floors in a house. A laborer has been found who deposes that this statement was true. He says that Williams called upon him to assist in the work of taking up the floors of a kitchen and two other rooms, and hired a plasterer to relay them in cement. These preparations had been completed when the victims came on the scene, and the murders must have been effected without delay. 
Williams left the hotel to occupy the villa, but in a few days he returned, saying that he could not sleep there, that his sister and the children had gone to Port Said, and that his plans were unsettled. He afterward returned to the villa, but finally came again back to the hotel. He hurried his marriage with Miss Mather. In fact, he went to stay at her mother's three weeks prior to the ceremony. The mother was eager for the marriage, as Williams made lavish displays of the banknotes, nuggets of gold, and diamond rings. In appearance, the man was not prepossessing. His age was entered on the marriage register as 34, but he looked 44. He had a sallow complexion, and his gait was awkward. He did not take his bride to the villa. He caused a lot of heavy boxes to be left there, which were afterward to be removed to a place unknown. He left at the hotel two traveling bags. These are now being closely examined. There are blood stains inside. There are few clues to the identity of the man. While he was living at Rainhill, he went to London. He returned dressed in foreign regimentals, including a gorgeous but faded coat, much the worse for wear. Williams said that this uniform was that of the Bengal cavalry, but evaded making answer to questions as to what regiment he had served in. He displayed poisoned daggers and knives, some of which he left at Rainhill. The kitchen only was searched today. The ground under the other rooms will be excavated tomorrow. The body of the woman found today was fully dressed, except that a boot and stocking were missing. The clothes were of fine quality. The woman had a dark complexion and short black hair, suggestive of a half-caste. She wore a wedding ring and a keeper. The rope with which she had been strangled was around the neck, and the throat was cut besides. The eldest girl's skull was crushed in and the head was nearly severed from the body. The brutality of the murder suggests the ferocity of Jack the Ripper. The work of concealing the bodies was carried out carefully. After a deep hole had been dug, the bodies of the women and two of the children were thrown in and cement was poured upon them. Then the bodies of the two elder children were thrown in and more cement was poured into the hole. Next, the flagstones were laid over the top of the hole, and finally, over all, was applied a layer of six inches of cement, extending over the entire kitchen. The house in which the bodies were found was once occupied by Williams. The bodies first found were wrapped in oilcloth and Turkish toweling, after the three bodies were taken out, the police continued their digging, it being rumored 
that the bodies of other women or girls who had visited Williams were missing. The search was continued under difficult conditions, owing to the almost unbearable stench and the fact that the whole floor is thickly cemented. The authorities, however, were determined to sift the matter to the bottom. The excitement caused by the discovery of the first three bodies was great, but it reached fever heat when the bodies of two other children were found to have been buried under the house. The first of the children's bodies was that of a girl of 12 years who had been strangled. The second was that of a girl of seven. The third, that of a boy of five. The fourth, that of a baby about a year old. The throats of the last three victims had been cut. Again, more on Frederick Bailey Deeming and his rottenness in another episode. I'll be back again soon with another episode of A Guest at the Past, 1892.